All right, the first order of business, I can hear myself pretty clearly, but I'm standing right next to myself. Can you hear me? And yes, I got some head nods in the back, a thumbs up. Excellent. So uh, if you would open your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Mark, specifically the fourth chapter, um, because it will be the basis for our service uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, if you can turn and listen at the same time, please do so. I'm going to give you a quick summary of what has transpired in the Gospel of Mark up until this point. So you're turning to Mark chapter 4. I'm giving you a summary um, so that we know where we are and where we um, will be jumping off from. So up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, in the presence of the disciples, has healed a demon-possessed man in Capernaum. Uh, He's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, as well as innumerable sick and demon-oppressed people. He's preached throughout the towns of Galilee. He's cured a man of leprosy. He's healed a paralytic and forgave him his sins. Jesus declared that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And while confronting the Pharisees on a Sabbath day, he restored a man's withered hand. He also appointed 12 of his disciples to be apostles. And he taught many parables concerning the kingdom of God giving only to the twelve a clear understanding of their meaning. So there's a lot that's transpired prior to this section of Scripture, and that context is given to you for a purpose because um, assuming that Mark's gospel is in chronological order, um, we will do that for the sake of uh, this sermon, or at least we have it in chronological order, therefore that's what we're going to, um, to assume was the case. All of these things that Jesus has done, notice Jesus is the key factor in each one of these uh, brief summaries, he has done them in the presence of the disciples. Okay? They are witnesses to this, uh, these miraculous things that Jesus has done, these statements that Jesus is making, uh, all in the presence of the disciples. This is important, um, and hopefully if I'm doing my job well, I will convey to you why that is important. But Assuming you've had enough time to turn to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, please follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 35. So if you need another page turn, take that time now, starting in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was asleep in the stern. But he was in the stern, excuse me, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, it is um, you who are mighty and display authority and dominion over all things. And we who are 
created in your image. We desire to know what it is you um, have planned for us. The reason for which you have called us to this earth is to know you, and we desire, Lord, to know you more fully. You've been gracious to us, and you've given us your word, and it is your word, Lord, as we know, which sanctifies. Your word is truth. So please, may it have its effect on us today, sanctifying us, leading us into a deeper relationship with you, and perhaps the beginning of a relationship with you, Lord, if you will it. We ask this all confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So Mark chapter 4, we have here the disciples moving across the Sea of Galilee. This sea, just for um, some historical or, or geographical reference, this sea is about 13 miles from north to south and 7 miles wide from east to west. So as if you're a seafaring person, you probably know uh, that means something to you. I don't get along with the ocean very well. In fact, we are mortal enemies. I will be very sick the moment I get in the water, so I stay far away. Fortunately, I'm not uh, a member of this, uh, this account here, so I didn't have to suffer along with the disciples the tumultuous seas. But they were, I believe, if I'm correct, working their way from east to west, so about a seven-mile trek across the, um, the Sea of Galilee, or the lake rather than a sea. Notice some key details here in verse 35. It was evening. It was nighttime. In the first century, no lights. Moonlight, if they're lucky. Starlight, if it's clear. So it's dark. And the further they get from the shore, the darker the night gets. All right, whatever uh, oil lamps might have been burning at the shore for them to untie the, the boat and get it out onto the sea, They're getting further and further away from. And if they're fortunate to have one or two on the boat with them, that's providing ample light sufficient for where they are, not necessarily what's around them. So for all intents and purposes, I think we can assume it was pitch black. And if it wasn't pitch black when they started, when the storm came and the winds came and the clouds came, whatever light might have been provided by the sun and the the moon, not the sun, it's daytime, evening time, by the moon and the stars, was obscured by clouds. So immensely dark, all right? That is reason enough to fear. Uh, I remember being a child and at nighttime having to go from the first floor to my bedroom at night alone and running as fast as I could because I was deathly afraid of the dark. Here the disciples are in the dark, on the ocean. The storm is raging. It's my worst nightmare. So it's, uh, you have Jesus, histor- or, or prior to this, we read he had performed many miracles and done many things, and he was tired, which communicates to you and I um, the humanity of Jesus. He was exhausted, he was asleep, he was getting rest. It was necessary for him. He's asleep in the stern. I already told you I don't go on boats, but I learned from uh, the internet that the stern is in the back of the boat. And if it's possible to display an image of uh, this boat, what is presumed to be a first century boat that the disciples would have been um, normally fishing on, this is generally or presumed to be what it would look like. And you can see the stern is in the back where there's this platform. Presumably, Jesus was on a cushion uh, sleeping there. So you have, again, it doesn't say specifically if all 12 are in this boat, but it mentions there were other boats with them. So they were not the only ones on the lake at this time. So that can just stay up there for, for your reference. You can absorb it. Relatively small, not a big boat, 
not able to endure a lot of rocking waves and winds and, and storms and such. So continuing down, you see in verse 37, a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling with water. Now, uh, there's probably between the weight of all the men that were in that boat and the water adding, uh, being piled in by the waves, it probably wasn't um, too long before they would start to sink where there would be too much weight where the boat would no longer be buoyant and they would start to go down. Jesus is asleep this entire time. The disciples are, are I don't think they're running frantically around this boat, but they're pretty frantic. And they're first, maybe not first, one of their inclinations is to go wake up Jesus because and then this is presumption on my part, perhaps they recall all the amazing things that Jesus has done prior to this, and they're waking him up that he might rescue them. Continuing through uh, this section here, they wake him up, and listen to the way they wake him up. Imagine you were woken up this way. You were asleep, you're comfortable, you're relaxing. Um, they shout at him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you, don't you care, Jesus? We're dying Hello, wake up, please wake up, save us. Like, we are in trouble and you're sleeping. This is not, this is not settling well with us. Um, please help us. Now, Jesus' reaction is, is quite remarkable. He doesn't address the disciples right away. He stands up and he rebukes the sea and the waves and says to them, speaking words, peace be still. And creation obeys immediately. I don't believe for a moment that when Jesus says, peace be still, that it was a slow fade out of the storm. I believe it to be immediate. And I believe that based on the final verse in this section, the disciples' reaction to it, where they're prompted with this question, who is this man that has command over the wind and the waves and the seas? So notice this first observation here in this account. To creation, Jesus commands obedience and submission, and it obeys. But to those made in the image of Jesus, you and I, he desires faith. Because Jesus speaks, peace be still, to the seas and to the disciples. He prompts them and questions them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? How long have you been with me now and witnessed the things that I have done by uh, miraculous and divine authority and power? How long have you been near to me, yet your faith is weak and lacking, that in a situation, in a circumstance like this, you would have fear, that fear would be your response? That's a provocative question. It's a, it's a confrontation to, to you and I who are believers in Christ. How long have you been near to the Lord Jesus and yet, your reaction to a circumstance in your life is fear and perhaps even a questioning of the Lord's care for you. Here, the disciples, their reaction after they're confronted and, and rebuked even by Jesus, they were filled with great fear. It says in verse 41. So the title of his sermon is, Who is this man? They asked this question right after that. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. The title for the sermon, Who is this man? The subtitle, From Fear to Fear. Because what began with a storm and the disciples full of fear and apprehension 
Jesus calms the storm. He solves the problem. But the disciples are still captivated by fear. But what has happened is their fear has been rightly assigned to Jesus Christ. No longer their circumstance, but to this man who has authority and command over nature. They were eyewitnesses to this. Repeating myself for a moment. Once fearful of their circumstance, they go to the Lord Jesus. He miraculously ends that turmoil by speaking, by, by opening his mouth and saying a word. And now their fear remains. However, it's assigned to the Lord Jesus, questioning, being perplexed by this authority that he has. And now I imagine, so I told you at the beginning of the service, um, the distance from one side of the sea to the other is about seven miles, assuming they're going east to west. If they're going north to south, which I don't believe they are, it's 13 miles. However the case, whatever the distance is, they're, they're sailing or rowing, probably not going that fast. Jesus calms the storm instantly. The winds stop, so maybe they're not even sailing and they got to row the rest of the way. What does that give them? A whole lot of time to contemplate that question that they just asked. Who is this man? And now, again, I'm surmising, because Scripture doesn't make clear, perhaps they sat and considered all that they had heard of in Scripture, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament as you and I refer to it. And these characteristics that are reserved only for God. And internally, they're processing this question. And so we're going to go through a few verses that perhaps the disciples were provoked to recall in their memory as they're answering this question. We'll start in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 9. Perhaps this is one of the verses that a disciple was thinking about. It says here, And God said, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God said, and it was so. Picture yourself in this boat, first century. Jesus said, peace be still, and it was so. They probably continue, perhaps. They go to Genesis 7, verse 4. In seven days, says the Lord, in seven days I will send rain in the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. God says, I'm going to send rain. I'm going to send it for a determined amount of time. And it's going to be for a specific purpose, to blot out all life on the earth. He said it, and it was so. Going to Jeremiah, perhaps they go to Jeremiah, one of the, the, the prophets, not too distant from them. Chapter 10, verse 12 through 13, it says, it is he, speaking of God, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. Now, if you would, keep your um, place in Mark 4 and turn to Exodus chapter 14 because this is a... Um, not quite a tangent, it's, there's a purpose to this, but 
we're going to go into a little more detail of perhaps, let's say the disciples had an extended amount of time crossing the sea of Galilee now, and we're quietly contemplating this question. Turn to Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. Um, I'll give you a moment to get there. Now, perhaps the disciples, being all, all of them Jewish, um, observers of the Torah, observers of the law, to the best of their capacity, being real, um, followers of the, the Jewish rituals, the, the sacrifices, the um, appointed times to be in the temple of worship, the feast of the Lord, they, for all intents and purposes, knew the story, at least, at the very least, of the Exodus. It's, it's the um, point in their history where they become a nation. Like they were, they were enslaved at one point and then they become a nation, the nation that these disciples now are a part of and members of. Um, so more than likely, if, if they don't remember Genesis, if they don't remember Jeremiah, if they're a good Jewish young men, they would know the story of the Exodus. So chapter 14 of uh, the book of Exodus, starting in verse 10, we're going to read a few verses here that perhaps the disciples were contemplating and thinking of. And notice just a few of the parallels here as we read. I will point out um, which ones I noticed, and you can notice uh, others for yourself if they stand out to you. So uh, Exodus 14, verse 10. Here it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the covenant name for God. That's uh, yud Hey vav Hey. what some people would say is uh, pronounced as Yahweh. They cried out to the Lord. You have the Israelites seeing this circumstance, this enemy bearing down on them. They're filled with fear. Their response is to cry to the Lord. Okay, that's parallel number one, somewhat obvious. Verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Imagine the disciples recalling the way they confronted Jesus. Don't you care that we're perishing? Now you have the parallel to the Israelites chastising Moses and accusing Moses. Didn't we tell you we would have been better if you just left us where we were content and enslaved? You can see the confrontation and parallels between. I don't need to belabor the point. Continue down to verse 21 in the same chapter. Here, uh, what transpired. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land 
and the waters were divided. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea a dry land. Verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Continuing, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptian into the midst of the sea, the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Here's the parallel again for our uh, section in Mark, verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servants. Perhaps stating the obvious, Going back to Mark, the disciples began in fear at the circumstance. They cried out to the Lord, the one that they believed to be capable of rescuing them. The Lord addresses their concern, calms the storm. The disciples are in fear. It's, it's very similar to the Israelites during the time of Moses. Fear at their circumstance, crying to the Lord. The Lord answers and provides the way, and fear remains, except it's ascribed to the Lord now. It's not their circumstance. It's not their circumstance. It's not what they're going through. No longer does the enemy who they're afraid of, but now they're provoked and, and prompted to answer this question, who is like the Lord that holds oceans apart and makes a path for us to cross? There is none like him. Now you're back in this boat with the disciples in your mind. And you've gone through these verses. You're answering this question that by Jesus' power, speaking a word to the, the seas, and, uh, and they listen, you are forced to answer this question for yourself. Who is this man? Who is this flesh and blood man that was just sleeping, woke up, and calmed a storm? He has tendencies and power that I know, as a good Jewish man, I'm speaking on behalf of the uh, disciples, that I know as a good Jewish boy is only ascribed to the Lord, to God Almighty. He's healed the sick. He's proven command over nature, 
over the sea. He's declared that he's Lord of the Sabbath. What else? What else does he need to do to communicate to them who he is? Thus, he asks them this question, confronts them with this question. Have you still no faith? Have you not seen enough? Throughout this Gospel of Mark and throughout all the Gospel accounts, what you have are recurring testimonies of Jesus displaying this godlike and divine authority. Where Jesus later commands sins to be forgiven, and they are. He commands a fig tree to bear no fruit, and it withers. He commands the lame to stand up and they walk. He commands demons to depart and they flee. He commands the dead to live and they rise. These are things that God alone has the power to do. No, no man, certainly no man that I have met or heard of, yet Christ in the flesh is performing these things time and time again. And so don't be lured um, as you read these gospel accounts, to, to say, how is this applied to me? How, how, is, how do I fit into this verse? No, let Scripture do what the Holy Spirit intended to do, and that is communicate to you who Jesus is. Let God's Word and the Spirit-empowered Word tell you that He has come in the flesh for a specific purpose. That's where you fit in. You fit in as you're the sinner that needs to be rescued. That's where you are in this story. And Jesus the rescuer has come and displays his authority time and time again to prove to you that he is more than capable of saving you from the peril that awaits you for your sin. That's where you fit in. So I'm going to go on what seems like a tangent, but I promise or at least I hope I promise, I, I, I intend to um, make it jive. So going back just to the point in history around 1400 B.C. or so when the Egyptians have been conquered and destroyed and the Israelites are now free from their captives permanently. Like the Egyptians have just been wiped out. Pharaoh is gone. The army of Egypt is destroyed. And the Israelites are now wandering through the desert. They come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And you have again the Lord doing something that instills fear into these people, he speaks. And when he speaks, the ground quakes, the mountain is burning, it's on fire, and the people are afraid. And what does the Lord say there? It's in Exodus 20. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read it to you. In Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments that God communicates to Moses. One of the first things God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This is what God's communicating to this people. It's a brand new people. They are officially a nation. The Lord has rounded them up, freed them, and set them apart for a purpose. And here he is, after performing all of these miracles, all of the plagues throughout Egypt, the, the Red Sea parting, God is speaking to them and communicating to them what they need to know and understand. He is the Lord, their God. They should worship no other. He alone is worthy of worship. Now, in Deuteronomy, which is uh, the fifth book in Scripture and really uh, Moses' retelling of the law, in chapter 30, 
Here's what Moses says. It's actually a warning. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 17 and 18, Moses says, If you turn, uh, excuse me, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. If you transgress the Lord and don't worship him as the only true God, and you go and turn your back on him and serve those who are not God in any way, you will perish. This is certain. Expect it. It will happen. God's declared it. God, speaking through Moses, has made it clear. You do this, you perish. So this warning is not limited only to the Israelites who were there at that point in history to hear God speak the Ten Commandments and communicate through Moses what he expects of his people. It's for each person who is made in God's image, which is all of you and me and every other human on this earth. As image bearers of God, our creator has a purpose for us. It's to know him, to serve him alone. Alone. No one else. And the promise of perishing, if we choose to serve other gods, is very real for you and for me. You can't say that's reserved for the Israelites. It applies to you who bear the image of God. Now, perhaps, perhaps you worship the God of lust. And perhaps whatever form of sexual immorality is appealing to you, you indulge in it freely. You don't turn your eyes away. You don't turn your heart away. You allow the pleasures of your flesh to rule over you, and you worship that God. Perhaps you worship a God of bitterness and resentment, and you're unwilling to forgive, that you hold grudges, that you hold over the head of someone who's offended you their offense with no desire to be reconciled to them. Perhaps that's the God you worship. Perhaps you give sacrifices of lies to the father of lies. And you are content being untruthful, unfaithful, and you delight in presenting those sacrifices to these false gods. Now, you know your heart. The Lord knows your heart. In some way, shape, or form, we have all fallen short and turned to worship those who are no God at all. We have broken this command. And the promise that Moses said, the rightful outcome for those who turn their heart away from the only living God and turn to serve those who are no gods at all, is you will perish. I will perish. That is a guarantee. Now go back to Mark chapter 4. This is where the tangent now becomes uh, no longer a tangent. In Mark chapter 4, when the disciples confront Jesus, they ask him a question. When they wake him up, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care, Jesus? You know what's interesting? 
He doesn't answer their question. On the Sea of Galilee, he doesn't answer them. Now, you might interpret it and say, well, no, no, Brian, like, he, he clearly answered them. He calmed the storm. He calmed the storm. No, Jesus spoke to the storm, spoke to the wind and the seas and rebuked them and made them be still. He didn't answer the disciples' question when they said, don't you care that we're perishing? Not on the Sea of Galilee, but on the hill of Calvary, by his actions, he answered their question, saying, yes, I care that you're perishing, and I am here right now. I am here to spare you the condemnation that your foolish actions of rebellion has brought on you. This perishing that you're concerned about in your flesh, that's not what you need to be focused on. I'm here to save you from the eternal consequences of your sin against God. I care that you're perishing. And here I lay down my life to rescue you to save you from what you can't save yourself from. You'll never be freed from this by your own effort. The Lord himself had to come and to do what you could not and to pay a price that you have no way of paying. You have no means to pay for it. Christ alone had to do this. He declares and answers their question, not when they ask it, but at the right time where everyone not just the disciples. It's not reserved for those few that were there in the first century. It is available for you and for me today. For the one who doesn't know Jesus, the one who's a stranger to him, he died for you. Whether or not you're willing to admit you've rebelled against God, you have. And his sacrifice is sufficient to give you the freedom from the condemnation that you have earned. And the means by which you receive it is faith. It's faith. It's not hoop jumping. It's not acrobatics. It's not box checking. It's not religion. It's faith. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe in the testimony that his life, that all the gospels give account to. Trust that he has declared he is God incarnate. Believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. Confess that he is Lord and you'll be saved. How amazing of a God do you have if you are a believer that the means by which you are pardoned for a lifetime of sin and rebellion against God is to believe and trust in him, to hold on to him. There is nothing that is difficult by our, there's nothing required of us physically that we need to do but trust in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is. And he does everything else. This is an amazing grace. It's truly amazing grace. So um, consider now when Jesus speaks to you post-cross, after he resurrects from the grave, when Jesus says to you, humble, repentant, contrite believer, peace be still, you now possess that peace. When Jesus spoke to the sea, and said, peace be still, it listened. To the believer who has sensed that Jesus is Lord, and he says, peace be still, you have it. You have peace with God. You're no longer an enemy. And that peace is forever. That peace is not temporal. That peace is not superficial. That, that is fleeting and passes and comes and goes. It is forever. Jesus says to the disciples, just before he's going to be crucified, your peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. It is yours. You possess it forever. Now, uh, consider just an illustration, please. For, and this is really um, an exercise in, for those who believe, but more so for those who are, are not quite sure of who Jesus is. Imagine for a moment that you have this multi-million dollar mortgage. Now, if you have a $3 million mortgage and it's a 30-year term, it's like $20,000 a month that you need to pay uh, in order to um, satisfy the obligation of your debt. $20,000 a month. And perhaps you found a bank foolish enough to lend you money when you didn't even have a job. And now all of a sudden, you have this amazing house and no way to pay for it. And the bank starts to realize, we just made a bad loan and this person's delinquent. We're going to have to foreclose the house. So the bank's angry. You lied to them. Uh, and you can't pay back your debt, and so the bank is going to take it away. You go to the legal proceedings. It's official. You're broke. You have nothing, uh, no way to meet the obligations of the bank. Sheriff comes to kick you out of your house, lock you out. It's being foreclosed. But at that time, a messenger comes uh, and stands next to the sheriff and hands you a letter, and this letter is a letter of satisfaction that says your mortgage is paid in full. Not you're caught up on your, your uh, delinquent payments, but all of what you owe is paid. And you're standing there, perplexed. Like, uh, you're literally about to be thrown out of your house, and someone comes along and says, no, not only are you able to stay here, but you're the rightful owner of it, and, and it's yours forever. Perhaps, if, you're, um, if you have a pulse, you would say to this messenger, who, who did this? I want to know who's responsible for this. And he says, well, here, look at the letter. It's got the guy's name and, and address and telephone number on the bottom. Like, you can, you can reach out to him if you want. In that moment, how much would you want to call that person and say, why would you do this act of charity for me? I, I have no idea who you are. Never met you in my life. I don't know anything about you. And I presume you know nothing about me. Why would you do this? In that moment, would you go and reach out to them? Would you call them? Would you be prompted to ask that question? Would you, would you want to figure it out? If someone was generous to you, aren't you often inclined, if they do it anonymously, like, is there not even a shred of desire in your heart? Like, who did this? I, I want to know who did this and who's responsible for this. Now, that's a weak illustration, but compare it to the reality of Jesus's substitutionary atonement, okay? You are flat broke in God's economy. You have nothing. You have no way of paying off your debt. You are so indebted, not even eternity, endless amount of time, is able to pay back what you owe. And Jesus comes along and says, I'll pay it all. I'll pay for all of it. And you realize, wait a minute, I, I kind of have an idea of what it says in Scripture, but I'm pretty sure the wages of sin is death. How are you going to pay for that, Jesus? Oh, I'm going to lay down my life for you, he says. I'm going to shed my blood that your debt would be paid and satisfied in full. I'm going to give up my life so that you have yours forever. 
Now, imagine for a moment that you're in this courtroom and Jesus comes and, and whispers that into your ear. Like you're, you're before the judge, right? You're before the God of creation. And you see, if you didn't know the wages of sin is death, he's got it like etched in stone above his bench. This is the wages of sin is death. You're like, oh man, I guess I'm in trouble because I'm, I know I'm a sinner. It's very clear. Like, I, I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't covet. Uh, there's heart adultery. There's adultery in the flesh. Like, you're dead to rights. You're 100% dead. And Jesus walks in and he whispers this to you. He says, hey, I'll trade places with you. I'll pay all your debts. Do you believe that the judge is going to accept this plea? If you plea to the judge, there's, there's someone here that's willing to be my substitute. Do you believe it? Now, perhaps you're an atheist today. Perhaps you say, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're, yeah, I've heard of you. You're that, mytho- you're that mythological Christian hero uh, who's done a bunch of good deeds, but yeah, you can't help me, sorry. Perhaps you're an agnostic and you just say, there's no way for me to really know Jesus if you are who you say you are. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm not gonna, I can't trust in you. Perhaps you're a nominal Christian. Perhaps you, you see Jesus like, oh, hey, Jesus. Yeah, I heard about you. It's so nice you're here. Um, I'm just about to tell the judge all the good things that I did in my life and then he's gonna tell me I can go free. Or, Perhaps you're a devout believer and you see Jesus. He doesn't even need to say anything to you. And you cry out to the judge, my redeemer is here. My savior is here. I have no plea. Hear him. I trust that what he has told me, what he has promised me, that if I believe in him, that he will get me across to the other side. He will bring me safely across. So I'm going to end with four points of application. They're probably obvious, but that's okay. I think the obvious ones are the easiest ones to remember. The first one is answer the question. Answer this question that the disciples asked. Who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus, that has all of this power, all of this authority that is reserved alone for God? And don't be a fool that asks this question rhetorically and doesn't go and find a definitive answer to it. Don't leave here and say, yeah, no, I guess there's, yeah, Jesus has done some pretty amazing things. All right, and then you just go about your life. Answer the question for yourself. You come to a conclusion about who he is and walk it out. Follow through. If you come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Lord, live your life accordingly. And if you rebel and you reject Jesus for what he says about himself, what his actions declare about him, then live your life accordingly. It's perilous, though, I I warn you. Because in Scripture, if you open your Bible, it will tell you, John will tell you, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. They were written down for a purpose. The Holy Spirit authored all of this that you would know who Jesus is. Application point number two, do not fear your circumstance. See, the disciples learned in a short amount of time, or perhaps maybe three years or so, um, they learned, though, eventually, that it's more appropriate to fear 
the one who has authority over creation than the circumstances of creation, even the people around them. And you see that in the book of Acts where these men that were formerly cowards become brave and bold before the Pharisees. The very people that put Jesus on trial, you realize at that point in history is like 50 days after Jesus was crucified, 40 days or so. Um, Correct me on the timeline later, someone who's a theologian. uh, Less than two months after Jesus is crucified, the same Jewish leaders are confronting the disciples and saying, stop talking about Jesus. And their response is, I can't help but speak about the things that I've seen and I've heard. No longer fear your circumstance. Point number three, which aptly follows, fear the almighty God. Okay? God's word declares he's almighty. And there's nothing on this earth, there is not a thing on this earth that you can face that is greater than him. There is no circumstance in your life that is harder to surmount than the sin that you have amassed before an almighty and a holy God. Anything, like your, your job stress, your family stress, your, your stress as a child, your stress as a senior, as an adult, as, a, as an advanced, like add it all up. It pales in comparison to the authority and the majesty of God and the stress and the fear of facing him without the Lord Jesus. So ascribe rightly fear to the almighty God instead. And number four, which perhaps is obvious, but I will state it until I have no more breath in my lungs, trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him alone. Because it's in Jesus you find the remedy to the dreadful wrath of God. It's in Jesus Christ that you see God's love for you. Every Sunday in North Shore, Ed Moore says, God loves you. He ends the sermon and reminds you and says, God loves you. Where do you find that love? You find it in Jesus Christ. You find it on the cross. You find it at the resurrection. You find it in scripture. And it's yours to possess forever. By faith, you receive the Lord Jesus. You are saved. You are secure. And no longer the circumstances of life are of a concern to you. You have eternal life to look forward to. You have fellowship with the Lord to look forward to. You have joy evermore to look forward to. You possess it, and it's because of who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to honor you. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to answer this question daily and have our lives be a reflection of the answer that we have given. May our lives be a fragrant and delightful sacrifice to you, Lord. May we ever present the gospel to those that are perishing, that they might come to know you came to rescue them. May we do this faithfully for your sake and for your glory. Amen.